Good news. My new book is finally here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth, and you can order it now wherever books are sold. I wrote this book after the five-year span between 2016 and 2020 when I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked literally every area of my life, my health, relationships, money, career, social status, and even my very sense of self. And along the way, I really got to experience firsthand how dysfunctional our culture's relationship is to loss. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success and shackled with isolation and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and our evolution not only as individuals, but also as a collective. So this book expands the conversation around loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we definitely cover those too, in order to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. So whether you're experiencing hardship now, or know you have past hurts that are holding you back in certain ways and still need healing, this book is here to support you. It's also a great book to gift to clients, family members, friends, just other women in your world who are going through a challenging time. It will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. So within the loving pages of this book, you will have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. It was not a joy to live this journey, but it really was a joy to write it. And you can find it again, wherever books are sold and the audio version of the book is available as well. If you would like some gifts to accompany you on your heartbreak journey, you can get those at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. Those are free. Whenever you order books, you can just send in your invoice or your receipt and we'll send you those accompanying gifts. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Sarah Avon Stover podcast, a space to come home to your inner wisdom. I'm Sarah, best-selling author and teacher of women's yoga, meditation, and spirituality. And this podcast was born out of my own desire to hear Dharma talks, which are what the Buddhist tradition calls wisdom teachings, through the distinct lens and voice of the sacred feminine. Here, I'll share these very talks, along with rich conversations about all different facets of the feminine spiritual journey. But above all, I created this because I believe that when a woman gets still and quiet enough to hear her inner wisdom, she's able to live her true path in the world. I hope this podcast helps you do just this. I'm happy you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, friends. Today's conversation is one that's really important to me. It's very close to my heart, and I'm happy to be sharing it. In honor of tomorrow being the first day of Women's History Month, and I'm really asking myself how it got to be March already, but I'll I'll take it, especially since Daylight Savings happens here in the U.S. two weeks from today. 
But again, in honor of Women's History Month, I want to give voice to something that has afflicted nearly every woman I know at some point in her life in some form or another. It's something that we started grappling with when our bodies started growing from girl to woman. It's something our sisters, mothers, and grandmothers suffered from. It's something that stays with us in subtle yet pernicious ways. It's something that we deny, judge, and hate, but also secretly love. Above all, it's something we stay silent about. I want to talk today about our eating disorders. In the opening chapter of my second book, The Book of She, I recounted the story of an intense and startling bulimia relapse I had just under 11 years ago when I was overcome with self-doubt and inner criticism while writing my first book, The Way of the Happy Woman. And upon reading my story, many women reached out, sharing things like, I too was bulimic in high school and sometimes have relapses as an adult. I've done so much spiritual and psychological work, and these episodes seem to come out of the blue. How did you heal from this? I'm going to be honest, the road to healing from eating disorders is long and complex, involving deep psychological, biological, and spiritual supports. What I've learned is that eating disorders are often legacy burdens that we inherited from our female ancestors and that popular culture perpetuates. I have a belief, I don't know if it's true or not, it's just an intuition, that eating disorders didn't exist before the patriarchy, before the witch hunt. So now, even in adulthood, eating healthy foods, exercising, cleansing, and fasting, and practicing yoga a lot can be extensions of an older eating disorder if the deep wounds at the root of that old coping mechanism aren't adequately addressed. So what I've learned on my healing journey is much more than I can share in one podcast episode, but in short... The overall attitude I found to be most transformative was to learn to see my eating disorder as a friend with whom I'm in a lifelong relationship, whether or not it's active. Today, I'm sharing more about this perspective shift as well as the therapeutic healing modality I've found most effective for healing not only eating disorders but also all sorts of other traumas and fragmentations. This modality, which is widely growing in popularity these days, is called IFS, which is short for Internal Family Systems, a form of therapy founded by Dick Schwartz. And it's something I've been a client of for several years now. I wrote about it in the book of She. And I also use this modality with my own mentoring clients. Rather than demonizing and pathologizing our eating disorders and addictions, both soft and hard, IFS teaches us how to turn towards them and befriend them. 
Today on the podcast, I invited a IFS therapist and lead trainer who specializes in addiction, eating disorders, and trauma to speak about this revolutionary way to approach these things that can plague us for many, many years and even our entire lives. Her name is Mary Kruger, and Mary is a marriage and family therapist, AAMFT supervisor, and an IFS lead trainer. She was the founder of Rimmon Pond Counseling, LLC, an IFS-based group practice located in the New Haven, Connecticut area. She currently offers private therapy, consultations, and workshops nationally and internationally through her newly established New Paths Counseling and Consulting, LLC. Mary envisioned and created the IFS Level 2 training for addictions and eating disorders several years ago. She is also a clinician for the Connecticut Military Support Program. She has been working in the field of addictions, eating disorders, trauma, and personal growth with individuals, couples, families, and groups for over 25 years. Mary enjoys engaging with people and sharing her experiences in fun and creative ways. She is particularly inspired and receives much joy from time spent with her family and friends and her two cats. You can find Mary online at mpkruger.com. That's M as in Mary, P as in, I'm not sure what P stands for, (laughs) Kruger, K-R-U-G-E-R.com, mpkruger.com. And now for my conversation with Mary. Welcome, Mary. It's really great to have you here. And uh, to start out, we always we always begin here with a personal check-in. And I'd love for you to share with us where you're joining us from and how you're doing today at the levels of body, heart, and mind. Yeah, well, I'm actually in Connecticut, right outside of New Haven in a little bit of a rural area. And Right now, I'm actually looking out at um, some beautiful trees with snow, which um, delights my heart. And actually, as I'm speaking, I see some deer walking by, which is really nice. Um, Energetically, I think my energy is pretty good. It's more like winter energy right now, not like that, like really vibrant summer energy, but it's, um, you know, winter energy that's supposed to be a little more calm and a little more introspective, so... And I'd say, although I'm a pretty outgoing person, I'm a little more introspective today. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I actually, I grew up in Connecticut, so I can feel not, not too far from New Haven. So I can just feel the energy of where you are right now. The snow oh, great. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm special. actually in Seymour. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. And Mary, I'm enjoying, I don't know if enjoying is the right word, but I find it interesting to ask people just what's happening for them at this stage of the pandemic now that we're almost a year in. And I'm wondering if you can share with us just, I know this is a broad question, but overall how this time has been for you 
And what's been helping you the most during this time? Like what's helping you to, to resource yourself? That's a really great question. Um, really, I've been going through a lot of different phases with the pandemic. When it first began, I was this really ultimate optimist thinking, this will only be for a month or two. And then <laughs> it got a little longer and and summer came and because we're in Connecticut, we had a reprieve, our statistics went down. So I, I got to do a little bit, go to the beach and be outside with friends. So that was very nice. And then we were back in again because things had gone up. So so what's happened for me over time, and I, I think there was a point where I started feeling um, a bit frustrated and impatient. And now I'm at this place where I've let go. And it's a really interesting place to be, um, not thinking about when it's ending anymore. And just being in the moment, you know, the other day I was walking up the drive. I have a long drive and um, I noticed I was looking up the path pretty far. And and then I told myself, well, if I look up there, I might miss the ice. So I'm going to stay here in the moment. And that's how I am with the pandemic now. I'm I'm not thinking anymore about when it ends that much. I'm thinking more about day-to-day things. And, you know, I'm really fortunate. I have... Um, a lot of family and friends. We do have a little pod where I live. It's not so bad. So I get to go out and do a few things like go to the store <laughs> uh, for food and go to the bank. So I talk to people that way. And, um, you know, I'm also involved in 12 step program, um, Al-Anon. So that's helped me. And, and then I have my IFS community. So I have a lot of really great supports. I'm much more fortunate than most people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I relate I relate to to where you are as well and the pandemic is just I feel like I've just gotten to a place of deeper acceptance of okay, this is my life. This is life now. Exactly. And yep. settling into it more. Yeah, and it's been kind of nice like I was traveling an awful lot, you know, for teaching and I should should say that my teaching has sustained me too and my clients I've um been teaching online, which is different, you know, a lot of online. I used to do a little online and, um, you know, I miss the travel, but then I've needed to stay home. So I I'm appreciating the things that have come with the pandemic. There have been gifts, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And before we started recording, I, you know, you asked me, how did I, how did I find you? How did I find out about you? And, what I shared, so I can just share it with the listeners, is that I was I was researching IFS, which is internal family systems, a form of psychotherapy, and eating disorders uh, because I I've been in various forms of psychotherapy since I was pretty much since I was 16 years old, and now I'm 43, so that's almost 30 years, and. During that time, a lot of what I was working on healing was eating disorders, and which started in my late teens, mostly anorexia at that time, but often cycles of bulimia. And then I've had different times in my adult life where I've had bulimia relapses. And those have been particularly tricky with getting in and, and healing the layers that were triggered into relapse. And how all this came about for me was that was one of my coping mechanisms for growing up in a house with alcoholics and just having a lot of addiction and trauma in my childhood home. And what I have found through my adult life and when I when I discovered IFS through working with one of my 
longtime mentors, who's also an IFS therapist, is that IFS by far and away was and is the most effective form of therapy that I have found for resolving trauma, eating disorders included. And since I work with a lot of women who have eating disorders or who are recovering from eating disorders, um, I really wanted to create space here to have this conversation so that women can know of other resources, other ways of recovering from addiction, healing disorders, eating disorders and trauma. So I'd love to, obviously that's what we're going to be getting into in our conversation today, but by way of getting into it, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you could share with us how, how it was that you came to focus on addiction, trauma and eating disorder and disorders in your practice. Like what, what is it that, that led you to this area of focus? Well, thank you for asking, Sarah. Um, I think I was destined um, for this. I, uh, when I was a little girl, I um, was helping my mom um, clean out the fridge. That's what we had to do in those days. And I was carrying my dad's beer bottles and one of them broke. And um, so I thought I'd be a good helper at four or five. And um, I cut my hand and had to get big stitches. So I've had a scar in my hand ever since. And I, I feel like that was like sort of the initial, you know, um, uh, meaning for me is that eventually somehow this is going to, this addiction that affects me and my family is going to turn into something good. And um, so without going through my entire history, you know, there's a lot of uh, addiction and alcoholism in my family, uh, my dad's side, as my mom liked to point out. And, uh, and um, you know, they did divorce and uh, I grew up with an extended uh, family with my mom and grandparents and lots of aunts and uncles. But, um, you know, periodically I was exposed to, you know, being around my father who drank and then later on my violent stepfather. So I ended up, um, I would say that I wasn't really so much influenced by culture, although that had something to do with it, but definitely more influenced by my family. And um, so I was in and out of some eating disorder behaviors, anorexia and bulimia from when I was about 15, 14 or 15 until my early twenties. So, so I somehow, so they didn't really treat eating disorders back then or even call it that I had been to a doctor and they just thought I had was in great shape, which was hilarious when I think about it, doing a hundred sit-ups a few times a day. But, um, so, so I ended up, um, you know, having some really uh, bad experiences when I left home and, uh, which furthered my trauma and, you know, the eating disorder reared its head back up again. And, I got out of it by doing like sort of uh, getting to like natural foods movement and all that and um, eventually doing some work on myself. And um, so all that went away, but I was left with like really bad anxiety, you know, cause that's what it was covering up. And I spent years kind of white knuckling it and some was helped some by um, the 12 step program, which is where I really think um, besides some moments in my childhood, in my adult life, in that moment, I think I felt what we call an ISFS self-energy because I was finally with a group of people that accepted and didn't judge me. Mm-hmm. So I had a few different careers. One was teaching and one was working for a Fortune 100 company. And um, I, I always wanted to be a therapist. And I went back and um, got my degree in marriage and family therapy. And I wanted my my focus to be um, like domestic violence, trauma, that kind of thing, um, addictions and eating disorders. And um, so I started working in that area, you know, and, um, 
I worked in a rehab for a while um, and started a private practice. And, and it's been my mission and my passion ever since. I just really feel like, you know, we talk about being grateful, you know, for the bad stuff that happened to us. I am grateful now because now I'm not in it anymore, of course. And I have a lovely life. So, so thanks for asking. So it brought me to this and eventually to, to IFS after I was a therapist for a while. I met um, up with um, uh, Ralph Cohen. He's a professor at Central Connecticut State U. I used to take students for him for internships. And he said, this fellow is coming to do a training, what I'd like to take at this Dick Schwartz. And I did. And I took the training and I began to see that the work that he's doing um, uh, really brought together all the ways that I worked as a therapist and plus more. So, yeah, yeah that's how I got here. It's been a great journey. Well, so I that image of the scar is really powerful. Mm-hmm. That that's kind of like your your reminder of your mm-hmm. your path of your purpose. And I relate to what you shared about your eating disorders and how in your early twenties they kind of subsided by with natural foods and healthy eating. I had I had that similar experience of kind of discovering health and yoga. And, and how that works for a while, but then the the Mm -hmm. underlying things, like you said, the anxiety that was beneath the eating disorders, when that surfaces, there's, there's a reckoning to be done with that too, to kind of get, get to the root. So we're not white knuckling it. Right. And I certainly replaced a lot of it with also working a lot, workaholism. Me too. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think it's really, really common. And Mm -hmm. So you said that you met Dick Schwartz, and for the listener, that is the founder of IFS Therapy. And you said that you found that it really combined the elements of therapy that you were doing with others with other aspects. And can you speak more to what what it was about that workshop with Dick Schwartz that really drew you in? Yeah, I mean, I was working with people. I do a lot of group work, um, and um, and I love yoga too. I forgot to mention in dance that also helped me recover. I wanted to throw that in on the side, but um, so I was very interested in you know um, working with the body, like how that can help people. So we were doing like some experiential things and movements and things in our group. Um, and I'm also a, a family systems thinker. So I, I look at like sort of a whole picture and we were begin we were doing role plays with what did cause parts. You know, we would talk to the eating disorder. We would talk to the addiction. We would talk to the little ones inside people and we'd role play them out. And, um, and then, and then I was also intrigued by the idea of spirituality and that, how that helps us to recover and, um, began to, um, be curious more about how that could be part of psychotherapy because I knew it from 12 steps. So um, when I met Dick and I got to know about the IFS model, um, oh, and the other piece is I got um, pretty soon when working with addictions, I got the idea that it doesn't make sense to like fight fight that part of them. I didn't call it, necessarily call it a part. I would call it their addiction or their eating disorder, but to get to know it more. So when I met Dick and we we began to train in IFS. I saw a model that pulled it all together, and uh, one area that I was really stuck in um, was um, how to work with the little ones. I I was really struck one day. Um, this is just before I started the IFS that I was sitting around with um, this group I was doing of women that were 
struggling with overeating. And um, they were like, well, nothing that we're doing is helping us. And then people were like, well, Mary gave us all these things to do. And, um, you know, nothing's working. And then someone else said, well, we're not doing any of the things. And then one of the people in the group said, you know, I think what's not working is, um, you know, no matter how good my life is today, this person had a really like um, pretty good life in the present. Um, all the things that supposedly we should aspire to. But the person said that, um, you know, I can't get out of my head being this little girl dressed in rags whose family was burned out. And that's what I see. And, um, and it makes me eat. And I can't stop when I get to, get to feeling that. And um, so I was intrigued. How do we unload this? You know, I knew from John Bradshaw that, you know, we needed to heal the shame that was in us. Didn't know how to do it, but when I met Dick and learned about IFS and um, exiles, the little parts, the little ones inside of us, he had a whole—he has a whole method for unloading all of that trauma. You know, not a, in a cognitive way, and it really intrigued me. So, besides bringing together what I was already doing, there was this piece that I really didn't know what to do with in IFS. Really, really brought me that—the possibility of really bringing people to healing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, some of the videos that I saw on YouTube when I when I was just when I found you and that that drew me in was you talked about how IFS has a non-pathologizing view of 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 addiction and a non-demonizing view and how the, how countercultural that is. Mm-hmm. that that yeah we want to we make we make we make this into an enemy something that we need to fight or get rid of um or get over and it's actually the exact that just makes it worse and and that was something that also intrigued me about IFS when I when I read um one of Dick's book because I'm I'm in the I'm I'm in training to be an IFS therapist and so just doing a lot more reading and studying about it how this all came about for him when he was working with women with bulimia Mm -hmm. and how he realized that when, when he tried to have them kind of use their, use their will against the bulimia, it just made, it made it worse. And he had to find another, another way in. So I think this would be a good time to, for those listeners who are not familiar with this, for, for you to speak to like what IFS is, and you've mentioned self-energy, you've mentioned exiles. I know there's some other kind of categories of parts we're going to want to speak to. Can you give us a little overview of what this model is and what it's composed of? Yeah, it's a... um really a sense of this synthesis of a systems thinking where we look at the whole picture of a problem, right? And multiplicity, which means we believe that there's, um, you know, we're made up of multiple parts, right? And, um, um, and that at the core, we all have a self, right? A self, even if we don't believe we have one that can bring us healing, you know, and it's more of a, like a, what I consider more of a spiritual self, right? So it's three things. It's multiplicity of the mind, it's systems thinking, and it's spirituality. And um, so most of us believe that we have just one mind and that our thoughts and feelings come from one unitary personality. But in truth, all of the different parts of our personality really make up who we are. So in IFS, what we believe is that um, 
uh, through our lifespan, through different experiences we have, that um, certain parts of us take on different roles, right? And the more trauma, the more attachment issues we experience, the more extreme some parts will become. So for example, if um, a child's not being taken care of, maybe I'm, I'm just going to refer to myself at six, I had a part of me that decided that I had to take care of everything myself, you know, that I was kind of a grown up. So that would be considered sort of a, a manager part, like a, uh, a sort of protector that kind of takes over and becomes like a parent. And those kind of parts, those manager parts, are the ones that plan things, that work hard, uh, that organize things, um, that uh, really keep things in control. Um, and out of that, you know, when those parts can't do what they need to do, right, we have other parts called exiles, which are what we call firefighters. And not all firefighters are addictions, but in people who have really traumatized systems or have a lot of negative life experiences that they've take on, taken on, um, those parts will engage in behaviors like bulimia, eating disorders, alcoholism, drug addiction, sex addiction, shopping, um, you know, gambling, you name it. Um, or it could be as light as mm, I like to read the New York Times every night, you know, which is just a little bit of relaxation. But they're there when the managers can't keep things under control. And that hence Dick came up with the firefighters. And underneath are what we call the exiles. Um, I also call them the little ones. And these are often younger parts of us that are holding on, uh, holding in shame and low self-worth and guilt and sadness. Um, all the parts that we don't want to look at that we need to brush under the carpet to function. So the two protectors are trying to keep those down and in the core is our self, right? And parts are not only uh, working with each other in, in unity, but they're also working at protecting self, our core, our core essence, right, from destruction. So um, that's kind of how it's organized. So our belief is if we can unburden parts that are holding burdens, right, we can, we can help rebalance the system and restore harmony to the system right, and restore the person to what they were originally meant to be in their life, right? So that's like a real quick, quick synopsis of it, right? But we want to liberate parts from their extreme roles, and we want to, we want to put more trust in self-leadership, right? And we want to achieve harmony and balance and wholeness. And, and ultimately, you know, Dick wants to bring more self-energy to the external systems that we live into, which could be our families, our friends, our work systems. It's really kind of cool. It is really cool. And I'm wondering, really just given, cool. yeah, given the example that you shared about your six-year-old protector part who mm -hmm. became an adult, pseudo-adult at such a young age and that was man, you know, managing things at that level, can you speak to like what, what would be some burdens that, sh that she'd be carrying, what she would be protecting and like how you went about healing that dynamic? Like, what did that look like for you? Well, I know she was protecting a younger uh, abandoned part that was abandoned when my parents divorced or felt abandoned. And um, I know that she also was protecting because there were no adults that were responsible at the time to take care of her. So she felt that she had to do all that so that her burden really was being old before her time. <laughs> Yes. At six years old, becoming parentified, um, she'd have to take care of younger kids in the family. And um, so that was her one of her burdens that she carried. But she was still a protector. And her main job was to protect the part, part of me um, that felt abandoned. That was one of her jobs. Um, 
you know, as I grew older, it all became too much and the um, uh, eating disorder part kicked in. You know, that one was to help me uh, feel more uh, whole and more in charge and to be able to escape. So the healing really was um, to work with those two protectors and ultimately get to, you know, and once they subsided, you know, I had mentioned that there was a lot of anxiety there. That's because I had a lot of um, exiles that were being pushed down by my protectors um, that weren't being dealt with. So one of the things that came up is a panic disorder, which um, eh, it's got some biochemical root, but really the panic disorder was really about another way of escaping because I didn't have my eating disorder anymore. Right. So I had to heal that. And when I got underneath, you know, I got to like little scared parts of me, you know, that didn't feel secure in the world and felt like she couldn't trust. And those those are the ultimate unburdenings, you know. Right. So we unburdened her. The others didn't have to work so much anymore. Uh-huh. So it's been a, it was a long road, though, because, you know, like I said, I didn't really run into IFS until like about 20 something years ago. Yeah. Mm hmm. So I was kind of white knuckling it in my recovery for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I heard you say in one of your videos that, you know, that you have a lot of respect for 12 step programs. And so do I, I and mean, they, they've really saved some of my family members and, and me, you know, through that. And I've done some Al-Anon myself, um, but that, that a lot of that program or those programs is about um, appealing to our managers and not so much going to the exiles and unburdening the exiles from what they're carrying, the, you know, the shame, the sorrow, the anxiety, the fear that's, that's keeping the managers protecting them. And then, like you said, when the managers become overwhelmed and then that the vulnerability from the exiles floods the system, that's when the firefighters come in to put out the fire um, which could be the drink, you know, the drinking binge or the the eating binge or whatever it is, or the, even just the being on social media too much. Yeah, I actually um, think that the 12 steps does have a way to unburden, um, but many of us just get, it's not meant to be manager focused. I think the first few, few uh, I think our parts can take on the management of it because we're fearful of going deeper, but to me, it's a rudimentary form of unburdening and, and uh, offers a spiritual aspect. I just don't think everyone can get there that way. Right. Um, I think they need, you know, and they even talk about it in the big book that sometimes we need therapy too, you know, especially if we're dealing with some psych- big psychological stuff. Right. Um, but I do, um, I do feel like a lot of um, the work there, like looking at our parts, um, you know, taking an inventory is about really getting familiarized with parts sharing with another person is like a form of witnessing. And then as we move forward, there's really a lot around self-forgiveness and moving into a spiritual life. Um, but I, I do think IFS enhances our ability to get there. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just how I, I look at it anyway. I think sometimes um, because we are manager focused in our culture, that's how we might approach different programs, including the 12 steps is from a manager perspective. You know, it's kind of really a cultural burden that we carry the idea of um, controlling things and elimination of symptoms as wellness. Yeah. Not being vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there is an invitation to be vulnerable, but a lot of people don't take it Don't take that invitation. Yeah. 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 Thanks for that clarification, Mary. Cause I I can see how, 
I can see how if you're really working the 12 steps that it would take you all the way. Uh, but, but like you said, it kind of just depends on the person and the context that they're doing it in as it, as any, just with anything, any kind of spiritual psychological path. Right. And who they're connecting with too, you know, right. that's a lot to do with it. Right. Mm-hmm. I want to take a short break from my conversation to share with you a way to deepen your women's yoga and meditation practices this season. So many women reach out to me or come to me for private mentoring with the desire to create more space in their daily lives for yoga and meditation because they know that the changes that they really want in both their inner and outer lives really aren't possible without these deep, consistent practices. Starting this month, my online women's spiritual practice community, Women's House of Wisdom, will shift from having one half-day retreat a month to two 90-minute sadhanas, or meaning spiritual practice in Sanskrit, a month. These bi-monthly sadhanas are templates for practices you can do at home on your own, yet they also include the extra magic of a women's circle community, so you don't always have to do your practice on your own. And since we're preparing to transition with the equinox in a few weeks here, we'll be doing seasonal tune-ups in both of this month's gatherings preparing our bodies, hearts, and minds for this new season. Because during seasonal junctures, we can often get sick or feel out of whack, and these practices are meant to help alleviate and prevent that to bring more fluidity to your life. Each sadhana will include time for sharing, meditation, breath work, yin and slow flow yoga, psychological inquiry, as well as teachings from me on that month's topic. This month, seasonal tune-up number one is on Tuesday, March 2nd, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Mountain Time. And the second one is on Tuesday, March 16th, from 3.30 to 5 p.m. Mountain Time. And each month, class times vary The start times vary between morning and afternoon to accommodate different time zones and different schedules. If you can't attend live, as always, recordings are available after each class, and they're stored in an ever-growing online archive. Plus, this is a monthly membership group offered on a sliding scale, so you can come and go at any time. You can learn more and join us for this month's sadhanas at womenshouseofwisdom.com. That's womenshouseofwisdom.com. I'm really looking forward to practicing with you in this way. And for now, let's go back to my conversation with Mary Kruger. Can we talk more about how this dynamic works between the the two types of managers, or sorry, rather two types of protectors, the managers and the firefighters and the exiles and self-energy in the case of an eating disorder? Like, is, can you think of maybe you, you want to use yourself as an example when you were healing or 
a particular client that comes to mind so we can really map out how this, this system, this dynamic plays out for people? Yeah, if I were to, to think of it, I mean, I can use myself, but I think I can generalize it because maybe more people can connect. Um, so there's a part of someone that brings them to therapy, you know, and it can be for a lot of reasons. Uh, it can be that they became frightened. Uh, it can be because someone made them. It could be because a part of them is just really sick of living this way. So I call that a manager part. So that part brings us to therapy and wants us to get better quickly. And is looking for a solution from the therapist, right? So that one comes in. And so I might talk a little bit and chat a little bit with that person in that part of them or side of them that, that really wants to get better. So we could interpret that as being fully um, committed, but that's not necessarily true. So then I might ask, so say a little bit about how your eating disorder is responding to you being here to do some work on it. And that's really the first invitation to um, let the person know that that eating disorder is welcome in the room and to say whatever it needs to say. And um, many people are very surprised by that question. They've never been asked it. And um, so we will, um, we will hear like, I don't really want to be here. Or I'm here to only please someone or... I'm going to be okay for a while, but then I'm going to do it my way, the way I want. And so I don't have to come back here again. Um, so that's the invitation. If a person has been in treatment, I'll also ask, you know, how did that part respond to you being in your treatment, you know, that you've just come back from. So once we establish that, um, I'll, I will say, so it feels like if you want to work on this part, we can do that, the eating disorder part. So check in with the, the one that brought you here and see if it's okay. And if it says that it is, we do. But the first thing that will come up is going to be a big critic. Mostly everybody has a huge critic inside of them. I'm using the word critic, but some parts don't like to be called a critic. But that part is, is another manager, right? And I, it's also a shamer. Many people say that they're feeling shame, but they're really feeling the shamer. So our first really part that we're really working with is that shamer. Um, I'll say, so how do you feel towards the eating disorder? I absolutely hate it. You know, this, uh, you know, um, Jill could do so much better. Um, you know, Jill is like a loser with this eating disorder. Jill can never like get it together. And so we'll do some work with that part, right? And often we find out its intention, right? Is that it wants to make the client, you know, um, better or more successful. But as we work with it, we'll come to this place where the part is actually exacerbating or making the problem worse because I'll ask, so how does the eating disorder respond to um, you know, the things that you say, and often they'll say it gets worse, or I can't make a dent in it. So I'll negotiate with that part to work with the eating disorder. And then our step, which is really counter to how many models work with eating disorders or even addiction in general, is to really befriend the eating disorder. So we befriend the part that people want to demonize and hate. So it's a completely counterintuitive. But if we think of things systemically, if we push on something, it's going to only increase force, Right. If we, if we let go and we invite in, now we're, we're decreasing resistance, right? So I want to get to know this, this part just like I'd want to get to know somebody in a family system. You know, the acting out child that everybody's trying to, like, manage and make better. You know, I'm going to welcome that part into the room. Well, once we create some negotiation and healing with the managers and firefighters as time goes on, and by the way, while we're there, we're going to get a clue in as to what, what's being protected, 
So often it'll be shame and worthlessness as an example. So I'll say, well, just acknowledge that that's there, you know, and if the person is not really far gone, you know, when they're eating disorder, maybe they only have a little bit of it. We might go to the exiles, do some work, and then the parts will sort of naturally unblend themselves, you know, the um, eating disorder. But if it's really entrenched, I might have to spend quite a bit of time working with the uh, protective system. And once that happens, you know, once there's some recovery going on, you know, in recovery, um, uh, you know, we're still going to have to work with those exiles eventually, you know, in the time that's, that's appropriate for our client. It could be immediately, it could be in a week, a month, or, or a number of years. But eventually that work has to happen because if not, um, what will happen is a relapse either of, of, the, of the eating disorder or something else will come up. Like often, you know, people engage in other behaviors like um, maybe drinking or uh, having an affair, things like that. So, so we really want to get down to that, that um, the younger parts. And, and with those parts, that's where we do like some serious unburdening work. It's really sort of the meat of, of the work that we do. And we unburden them, you know. And when we unburden them, we're allowed to, we can then restore the system back to its original way it was meant to be, you know, before all the trauma was taken on and all the negative experiences. So that's really a quick way to look at it. Um, um, it's pretty, um, how's, what's the word I'm gonna look at? I'm gonna um, try to think about. Uh, it's pretty um, clear way to work, a clear path. Um, you know, we work with managers, firefighters, the protective system, and then we unburden the exiles. And the timing varies from client to client. Um, and of course we do take into account if there's other issues going on, like external problems like homelessness or, um, problems in the family, things like that. And also if there's any biological stuff going on. So we really look at the whole picture, but that's the essence of how I would work with the parts. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that explanation. And yeah. so it's, it's in this scenario, the, the manager is the eating, oh, sorry, the manager is the critic mm -hmm. that comes in at a young age, just like your six-year-old manager who is trying to be adult right. comes in at a young age and that that's a burden in and of itself to, to have that, that, that role, that level of responsibility. And then it's covering up something that is too much for the system to feel at that age, at that time doesn't have the right support or resources to, to feel that, that level of shame or vulnerability. And when that criticism doesn't seem to work anymore to keep that exile down, then the firefighter of the eating disorder comes in. Yeah. Usually those parts come in, um, in adolescence, you know, anywhere from, you know, I've had people as young as, you know, eight or nine years old that started with bulimia, but more, most frequently, it starts around middle school, uh, yeah. first freshman year of high school. It'll come yeah. in. I mean, because life gets more stressful, and your system can't handle one, it, right? And there's certainly more than one protector, and um, you know, and they're trying to keep things going. Um, and when we're little kids, we might do other things. Like some people do start engaging in, um, you know, comfort eating at four or five years old, or you know, reading obsessively. You know, so we do do other things before you know, like a serious eating disorder might kick in. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one of my therapists asked me um, when I was working, when I was healing my eating disorders, it's like, well, what were you doing with this energy before you started making yourself throw up? 
And that was really eye-opening for me. I was like, oh yeah, there's, I had all this energy that couldn't find an expression and I must've been doing something with it. Exactly. Yeah. Like there were some other ways that we were surviving or keeping going before that. And, you know, for me, there was always a spiritual piece that kept me going. Me too. Can, can you speak more about that? Yeah. I mean, I was brought up um, Roman Catholic um, and um, you know, luckily my mom just wasn't like a literal interpreter of religion and, and gave me a lot of supports in that area. And we're kind of a spiritual family, really, you know, I'd say pretty spiritual. And um, so we're always talking about that kind of stuff and um, always there for each other um, even in hard times. So you know, I've, I just found that for me, like, you know, sometimes I go sit in the church and it would be like a refuge and I feel the light, you know, uh, well, I would call it the light of God, but for others, it might just be the light of the source or the light of the mother or, or whatever, just light coming in and bathing me and just feeling that presence of that. And I also often felt, you know, from a little girl that I had a, a special angel, uh, Belinda, that has guardianed me all these years. I could feel her energy around me. So, um, you know, so I've always felt like a presence there, you know, like, um, and it's hard to, to verbalize what that feels like unless you've experienced it, but always felt a presence, which I'm really grateful for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I had a similar experience. I was also raised Roman Catholic and I had that experience with mother Mary and it was usually in my bedroom at night. I had a little little painting of mother Mary that I got for my first communion that I kept on my nightstand and I still have it now it's on my altar, but I would just really feel her presence and and night was particularly stressful. Like I could hear my parents fighting and couldn't sleep. And that was, that was just my, my refuge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to, I also want to speak a little bit to cycles of relapse or these like these cycles that we can get into with addiction that I know in IFS, it's called a polarization between the manager, the the critical part and the firefighter, the eating disorder part. And it's like, they both, it's like, they, they seem to be at odds with each other um, Mm -hmm. because the manager gets upset with the firefighter and um, can you speak, can you speak to like how, how that can be resolved? So then if there's, if there's a relapse, the firefighter comes in and then once the fire is put out temporarily, because there, there's, there's just a temporary, temporary soothing of emotion of that, that anxiety or the vulnerability or whatever it is. And then the critic part kicks in again and the critic part can say like, we'll never do this again. And I know in my case, it was like putting in stricter parameters around like food or exercise and just making, making the system more controlled. And of course that was out of balance. And then when I would, you know, get triggered by something again and feel vulnerable, the firefighter would come back and it was just kind of just went round and round like that, even though I really wanted to stop. I just felt out of control and like I couldn't. Right. There's, there's, um, I mean, that's a really big piece of the work. Um, people relapse for a couple of different reasons. Um, one of them is that, um, 
both sides didn't buy into the whole recovery idea. Like um, the recovery could be only management focused and the part that was engaging in the behaviors did not really fully buy in or agree to shift and change. So we work by getting both sides to hear each other and to come up with mutually agreed upon ways to work. Like that's how I work with somebody. So if somebody has a part that absolutely never wants to eat breakfast, you know, because that's just going to make them fat. We'll work a little bit with that part. And um, they have another part that, um, you know, knows that they need to do something like that and is ready to come in with like this huge meal plan for breakfast. I'll have the two parts negotiate on what will they agree upon? Well, you know what? I'll agree on a bagel, a half a bagel and some orange juice. Great. Great starting point. Let's go there. Instead of worrying about like this perfect meal plan that was all manager designed. So, so there's, so I get the two to also really hear each other and what each other's intentions are because often they're like two parents that are at odds fighting about how to take care of the kids. And, you know, the way we would work is to get them to hear that each of them really wants the same thing. So is there a way we can agree together to work on that? So that's one reason relapse happens is because there's not a full agreement with both sides. Another reason could be that, um, you know, um, something triggered the exiles underneath that they were protecting that weren't healed. So, um, so that, so we would have to go and like really do some work with those parts that were holding like the shame and all that. So sometimes people stay in, you know, they're, they, they're saying that they're recovered because they're not doing eating disorder symptoms anymore. But the truth is that there's other stuff going on underneath that's not been addressed. So that can show up in a short period of time or it could show up 18 years later, you know, that mm-hmm. perfect recovery person 18 years later for some reason relapses. Well, it's because something got triggered that the parts couldn't maintain control over and um, it ha- that has to be healed. A third reason could be that the person is re-traumatized you know, like in some sort of adult trauma, you know, something happens, they're in a shooting or something like that and they're re-traumatized, so. Right. Mm -hmm. And something else, you know, you you talked about, it's a really kind of, it's a very different way of working with eating disorders by befriending that part rather than Mm -hmm. demonizing it. Yep. And this this aspect of hearing hearing from all the parts hearing their intentions just like you know this is internal family systems just like if Mm -hmm. you were doing therapy with your actual family members and you're having conflict with them can really help just to sit down and hear from each person like maybe someone engaging in certain behaviors or certain type of conflict like what their intentions are what their experience is Mm -hmm just hearing that from, from other people, other parts is so important. It's very powerful, very powerful. And how one of the premises of IFS is that I forget the exact phrase in IFS, but that all parts are, all parts have positive intentions. Mm -hmm. Like they're all, they're all trying to um, work towards our highest good but it just looks different for different parts that's right and and their intention may be positive but if um it begins to cause harm but they don't stop because they don't know any other option right yeah. mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so i'm wondering if um i'd love to give the listeners a little experience of this 
because it's one thing to listen to it and it's another thing to actually have that felt experience in your own system. If you can lead us through uh, just a short, short experience of getting to know one of our or some of our parts. Oh, I'd love to do that. Yeah. So what I would invite people to do is um, to maybe focus on a part of them that helps them to soothe or to escape, you know, something they use to relieve pain or soothe or escape from things, relax, um, a firefighter of their own. And just take a few breaths and just notice where you hold that inner around you. And just kind of focus for on it for a moment to just get more of a sense of it. Just really taking it in, just noticing what it's like. And even wanting to, one can put their hand on wherever that is that that part might be living right now, just so it can really feel you there with it. And as you're there with it, just beginning to notice how you're feeling towards it. Like what, what's coming up for you? What reactions are you having? And acknowledge whatever's coming up, whatever parts of you are reacting to your firefighter. And imagine all of them going to sit in a little waiting area just to observe for a few moments. Just invite them to step into that little waiting spot. Bring your attention back to that one that helps you escape, that soothes you. And just see if you can open your heart to it. And if you can't, having whatever is blocking your heart move into that waiting spot. And taking a few more breaths and expanding your heart energy. And extending it to that one that's there for you. The one that helps you to escape, the one that soothes you. Just let that part really feel you there with it. And in this place, invited to let you know in some way, it doesn't need to be with words, it could be with images or a sense, but to let you know anything it wants you to know about itself. 
and acknowledge whatever it's sharing with you. Invite it to share what its hope or intention is for you in any way that it wants. I'm just going to breathe that in. And then ask it if it can let you know in some way it's fear, what it's concern or fear is about not being here for you. sending it a little heart energy around its fear, acknowledging that your concern. And then invite it to let you know in some way what it needs from you in order to relax just a little bit. And again, just letting it know that you took that one in. And just letting it know that you're not trying to get rid of it, but if it could relax even more, if it didn't need to do what it does, ask it what it would really truly like to do for you. If it wasn't impelled or compelled to do what it does, what would it really like for you? Just breathe that in also, just breathe in what it's really love to be able to do for you. And just begin to extend and express some gratitude to this part. Whatever it's shared and for whatever it does. Begin to notice what it's like for this part now that you've connected with it a little bit. And thank the ones that made space in the waiting spot. And if some didn't want to make space, let them know that's okay too, but just send them a little gratitude as well. All that heart energy. And then invite 
all of your parts to wait wherever they feel most comfortable until you can be with them again. And just take a few deep breaths, bring yourself back into the space. And any kind of movement that you might want, even if it's a micro, just to bring yourself back into the space. And then just seeing what things are like in your system now. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Mary. That was beautiful. And I, I, one of the things I love about IFS is just the meditative quality of it. Mm-hmm. Of just going inside. Yeah. And the mystery of, I just never know what I'm going to find. I'm usually surprised, pleasantly surprised. Right. By what, what my parts say and what's, yeah, what's actually happening. It's usually different than what my mind thinks it is. I love that. Yes, it's always a discovery. Yeah. Our mind has guesses, but our parts really know. Yes, yes. And we've, we've, we've kind of been touching on this, dancing around it, but I want to really presence it in a more central way right now and that is the role of spirituality one spiritual path in recovery and whether that's through aa um, or with your higher power or ifs with self-energy or weaving in uh, yoga and meditation you know i've i've found that Spirituality has been central for my recovery, and I know I'm not alone in that, but I, I think it's something that we don't really talk about enough, maybe because it's also kind of still more culturally taboo. But I wonder if you could speak to that, like what what your experience is with the role of spirituality and recovery in yourself or in, in your clients. Well, I don't believe that um, without spirituality, I'd be in recovery today. Um, And, you know, even Jung talked about it in um, the big book of AA, um, that he had tried all of the psychotherapeutic um, interventions and none of them worked with this gentleman, but he suggested on the doorknob that perhaps some something spiritual would work some spiritual stuff he had heard about and you know certainly you know spirituality varies for every person you know for some people that don't have any belief in like a god or anything you know it could be you know nature or a group of people you know um, the energy of a group of people Um, but there's something about that that allows you know me and I think others to be able to let go like if there's no nothing else there I don't have any trust or faith. I can't let go of things, you know, I can't let go of those parts of me that, um, 
you know, sustain me because I don't believe I have a self. I don't believe that there's anything bigger than me. I don't believe that I have a self connected to anything bigger. And I think it's really hard then to let go. Um, I think then we want to have a manager in control all the time because it's all that feels safe to us. So, but I also think it's an evolution and I don't think it's something that I can, you know, uh, myself or anyone else can tell someone else that they should have as part of their recovery program. I think it's only something people come to on their own. And many folks, you know, have been so wounded in life that they've lost all hope and they believe they, they have been forgotten, you know? Um, so they, 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 they don't believe that there is a self. They don't believe there's a possible spiritual connection for them. But I, I do believe, and I have found just by working with parts that a lot of this comes out naturally over time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's how Dick discovered it, because he doesn't really have a religious belief system that he was brought up with. He learned all of this from his clients. And and I can say the same. I've worked with some people that were really adamantly opposed to the idea that there was anything else, you know, that could help them. And over time in working with themselves, they had amazing experiences, you know, um, of spiritual connection in many different ways. So, um and it has been a taboo subject in the therapy room um, for decades. You know, we want to look at it as a science. And I guess um, our scientific parts don't often think that spirituality is scientific. But um, there are people that have experimented with it, like the Fetzer Institute, and they've done research on spirituality and can prove that some of that exists. And even Einstein believed that there was something. So, um Yeah. So anyway, so that's my take on it. I I, I think it's really very individual for everyone. Um, I like the the idea of it being as as one understands it so that um, it can fit anyone in a way that fits them best. And if the best we can do is, you know, this desk I'm sitting at is it for now, then that's okay. You know, this is my support. It's just that I don't have to do it alone. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I can understand why psychotherapy really wanted to exclude spirituality to make it more of a credible science. And maybe that was needed at a different time in history. But I, I hope that more and more of these two spirituality and psychotherapy will will blend more and more as they do in the model of IFS and, and the work of Carl Jung. Um, another influence for me in my healing of, of my eating disorders was reading the work of Marion Woodman. And mm-hmm. she, she wrote a lot about bulimia and alcoholism with how alcoholism is, is really imbibing spirit. And it's this, this deep hunger for spirit and overeating is imbibing the mother nourishment and then the purging of it is just is the 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 rejection of that, like the the, the our feelings that that we're not worthy of that. And so I think within all of us, there is there is this to different degrees um, this deep hunger for for that which is greater than us, for that which we are. Yeah, I mean, um, there's a book, Dancing um, by the Light of the Moon. Um, I've forgotten who's written it that talks a lot about, you know, the mother spirit and women and food 
And uh, there's the work of Orion Mountain Dreamer. Um, she talks a lot about self and um, she wrote her book, this book that I have uh, probably in the early, maybe 2001. And uh, then I was thinking about Mike Elkin. He's one of the senior uh, trainers in IFS and really influenced my work with addiction. He's well known in the addiction field, but he talks about addiction being a religion. And when we mm. think about eating disorders or addiction, so I, I was just reminded of this by what you just said a few minutes ago about addiction, um, that, you know, it, it, there's its own ritual. <laughs> totally. Uh, it's something that, you know, we hang on to like a talisman, right? Uh, it yeah. has its own rules. And all of that, you know, it becomes its own religion, uh, brings us that security and comfort. Right. Right. So if we don't have something in place of that, you know, it's going to be easy to go back to because it brings us all of those things. You know, um, it's meditative, right? <laughs> yeah. We could even pray. We pray to the porcelain God, I guess. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it all becomes all encompassing. It takes everything from us offers us everything as well yeah Almost. that's that's really interesting mm-hmm. and I, I like I like what you said about how how in IFS it just it just leads us to the self and mm-hmm. how that's because our, our natural state of being is self or in Buddhism right. it's like your essential nature this basic mm-hmm. goodness and the premise in IFS is that that self exists within everyone. And when our system comes into balance, that we just, we experience that because it is our natural balanced state, but we've just, we've moved into these other configurations of energy because we were trying to cope with things. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all religious, religious traditions really, um, speak of many, many religious traditions speak of this, as you were mentioning Buddhism and Hinduism and, you know, Christianity, we talk about the soul and uh, Judaism, they uh, talk about Nishalim, um, Nefesh. So there there are words for this in in all cultures, just about this self that we talk about. Right, right. Yeah, this beautiful energy. And so, Mary, what is what is your spiritual practice looking like these days? Like what's what's feeding you at that level? Well, I pretty much do. I still stick with some of my uh, Catholic traditions, you know, praying to the Blessed Mother. And um, I haven't been in a while because of the the COVID, but I do like the rituals of that. And um, and I'm I'm also really influenced by yoga. Um, you know, I like, um, I do a little bit of yin sometimes, and I like um, different forms of yoga and meditative uh, things. So I like, I guess, prayer and meditation, you know, and um, I also uh, do some 12-step work. So those are all of my spiritual pieces. I do a lot of reading about various um, traditions. I'm interested in learning about so many different um, spiritual traditions too. So I've always been curious about that reading and meeting people and talking with them. So that also fills me a lot. So is there anything in particular that you're reading now or that you've read recently that would be worth naming for us in case it interested other women? Oh, I have um, so many books working, but some of them are, let me see. 
Well, I like this book, The Dance by Orion Mountain Dreamer, but it's quite old. But I've moved back into it again because it, I, I just love the um, this little phrase, moving to the rhythms of your true self. Hmm. So, um, and I love it. It's got um, some meditations in there and some, you know, some beautiful poetry and things that really speaks to me as a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And I do like this book by John O'Donoghue. It's a po- book of poetry. Um, I bought it in Ireland. Uh, it's called Benedictus, a book of blessings. I think it has a different name here, but they can look up John O'Donoghue. It's got some really lovely readings in there. And um, so those are a few. I, I probably have lots of different books working. Um, and I, I do like The Wheel of Life. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's um, not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the classic guide to the chakra system. By oh, Anna yes. Judith, yes. PhD. Mm-hmm. I like this book a lot. And it's got some really cool stuff in there to do, um, especially if you're doing work with your body and, and such. Right. Yep. Yeah, that, that's a great book. Yeah, thanks for sharing those. Yeah. And what do you feel like is your current growing edge in life, in your, in your spiritual life or your just your overall life? I think my growing edge right now is making more space for me in my life because I've been working a real lot. Um, I love my work and, um, you know, slowing down my pace and taking in more of the day-to-day. I actually want to do a lot more um, with yoga um, than I've, I've been doing um, and really immerse myself more into it. Um, and my dance, too. Um, so my growing edge now is getting my parts to allow space for me to do more of the things that really um, fill me. Mm. Yeah, because I do, you know, that workaholic part and I are still conversing. Right. <laughs> Um, it's tough when you really like what you do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and when it's um, like, it's really helping people and, you know, all, all good stuff. Right. Yeah, exactly. But we also need to replenish. So that's my growing edge still is creating a balance, um, between the work I love and replenishing myself with the things that really sustain me. Mm. And that includes actually visiting and connecting with people, although we can't do much of that now, but mm. it's coming. I'm not worried about it. Yeah, it'll happen. (laughs) I meet people outside. Right. And just for next steps, like if, if someone's listening to this and they are struggling with an addiction or an eating disorder, even if it's, even if it's subtle, even if it's soft, uh, what might be the next step for them? Um, I think to connect with um, a therapist that they trust. Um, um, if they can locate an IFS therapist that works with addictions and eating disorders, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. If not, you know, maybe picking up some of the literature and getting just a really good therapist that they feel good with uh, locally, but just someone who would intuitively know not to just polarize with their eating disorder or their addiction, but who can be there with them in their journey. So, um, yeah, I think that would be their next step is to not do it alone to reach out. Mm -hmm. 
And Mary, how can how can folks find you? I'm, I'm going to put your website in the show notes, but um, how can folks find you? And you know, do you have anything coming up that that you want to mention? Um, well, there's a lot of trainings coming up. You know, if people yeah. are interested in training, if they're interested in that, we have a lot of trainings coming up. They should, might want to get in touch with the IFS Institute to see what's happening. Um, and I have um, a level two happening in Poland in April, but it'll be online. And then uh, one that's supposed to be in New York Metro level two on addictions and eating disorders in November. I'm sorry, October. Um, so if, if they were already trained, you know, they can sign up for that. Um, and there's also the IFS um, circle and the IFS continuity program. If someone's not ready to really commit to um, a full training, you could sign up online for something like that, which is also listed with the IFS Institute. And I'm on their site as a therapist um, and trainer. So, Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if you just, and, I, and I'll put the link to the IFS Institute website in the show notes as well, but there's mm-hmm. also just occasional shorter courses and also an audio book that Dick Schwartz did with Sounds True called The Sum of Our Parts, which I would mm-hmm. recommend as a, as a next step too. Yes. And actually um, my favorite book is the introduction to IFS. It's just this tiny little book with trees and it has a some experiential things in that you can do. And it gives you just a really nice introduction without a lot of technical, you know, textbook kind of stuff. So Great. that's my favorite way to be really introduced to the whole model without, you know, committing to any trainings or workshops or anything. Great. Yeah. But um, I would um, suggest though, if someone were going to take something that it be with um, someone who's, um, you know, certified um, and, a, and preferably a um, assistant trainer or trainer or program assistant. Yeah. 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 And Mary, is there anything else that you want us to know or that you want to say before we close? Yeah. I I think for people who are listening um, to not give up, (laughs) you know, if you give up, you, you might miss the miracle happening and, and to, um, you know, in your most hopeless moments, if you, if you're feeling that to um, know that there's something out there, there's a lot out there for you still. And um, to acknowledge that you might have been through some difficulties, so it feels that way, but to know that there's more out there for you. Um, and, um, and I'd like to send uh, love and light to everyone who's listening. Thank you so much for joining me and for taking this time out for yourself. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be very grateful if you'd take a moment to rate and review this podcast. That way, other women who might enjoy it can better find it. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support.